And good evening, everyone. This is Rich Farago, known as Met Fan Rich on Twitter, and you are listening to the 14th edition of a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And, and I guess I should say happy All-Star break, maybe? I don't know. Um, if you're a Met fan, it's happy because it means you get four days off from um, what has been a very rough first half. Mets finished uh, the first half, which is obviously not the, the statistical first half, but the uh, going by the All-Star break, the first half at 39-55, and 55, which is painful to say. And But I won't say it alone. I have a couple of friends with me. Um, and so I'd like to introduce them first. Let me in, let me send my voice down to Brooklyn and introduce my colleague of what is now five and a half years, Mr. Mike LaColent, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Hey, Mike, how are you? Time flies when you're having fun. I'm well, thank you. How are you, Rich? Doing well, doing well, thank you. And uh, and then let, let's really get the megaphone out and send our, our uh, hello out to Denver, Colorado, and, and talk to... The mastermind behind the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, Mr. Sam Maxwell. How are you doing tonight, Sam? You humble me. You humble me. But uh, I'm, I'm very well. I uh, am happy that we, we get to say, uh, you know, the first half is done and we can see how the Mets do in the second half. I think we, we all probably – we're going to obviously get into it. I think we all have, uh, you know, the, that feeling of, of wanting the Mets to take the best approach long-term possible to wanting them to win. So we'll, we'll have to see where, where we stand on whether or not we actually even want this team to go on a miraculous run. <laughs> what a nice thought just to even entertain that miraculous run. So, um, all right, so, so let's jump in, shall we? So um, here we are, like I said, we've come to the uh, traditional – end of the first half as demarcated by the all-star break and the Mets are 39 and 55, which is um, probably the inverse of what we wanted and, and probably what we expected after the 11 and one start, you know, if somebody said, Hey, you'll end the first half at 55 and 39, you know, that would have been just a slightly better pace than they were actually, sorry, worse pace. And they were, than they were playing at 11 and one. Um, but we probably would have said, okay, all right, but, but that's not what happened. There's 16 games under 500, uh, you know, a couple of other things that have happened in the first half. Uh, the GM had to step down to take care of his health, which obviously we wish Sandy Alderson well. Um, so that happened. Um, basically, to say that the wheels came off the bus would be would be putting it mildly. I mean, the wheels came off, the chassis came off, and, and the frame fell apart. And, and so let's start to pick it apart. I'm going to ask you guys a general question first. And obviously, as we go along, you know, we'll, we'll delve into specifics. So, Mike, I'll go to you first. Mike, your general reflections on the first half, and and if you had to think about, you know, why we're looking at what we're looking at, what would you say are the the reasons why? The main reasons why? Oh, I wasn't prepared for that question, really, the way you put it, because I thought this team would uh, compete at least for the second wild card spot. I wasn't happy with the win now attitude. I, I preferred they had gone a different route. Be that as may, I still thought you know they'd be at least uh, an above 500 club by this point. And you know I, I would I would be okay if they were at 500 now, but they're not. Things went horribly wrong. You throw that on top of what happened last year. So what happened? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to 
beat a dead horse. Uh, I'm I'm of the opinion that things start at the top and trickle their way down ultimately to the field of play. Uh, so there's a certain mentality that I think that went into this disastrous season thus far. Uh, some mistakes along the way, but what organization doesn't, you know, commit mistakes from time to time. It just seems that the Mets' mistakes are more numerous uh, and and it's more commonplace uh, than not. Uh, So where did it all go wrong? Uh, I I would say relying, bringing in and relying on old, older players again, as opposed to uh, looking towards youth, no matter what, well, uh, you know that's that's a, that's exaggerating things, but no matter what their talent level uh, within the system, uh, you know you look at the Phillies, you look at the Braves, youth, but you look at the Nationals, and you really got to question uh, those three teams leading the pack at the moment, which has the best business model, uh, and then you could throw the Mets into that equation. You know, Mike. I, I would agree with what you said. I think, um, and that's exactly what I was looking for, you know, a, a general comment about why they find themselves in the situation they do. And and I think it's right. I think the decisions that were made to put these particular players on the field, you know, many of whom were 30-plus, um, you know, Todd Frazier, 32, Bruce, 30. I mean, these were conscious decisions that were made. You know, they chose to bring these players back. You know, neither was a Met at the end of 2017. And they chose to bring these guys back, and and that's the business model. I like the way you said that, because when you look and you watch the way the Braves play the game with their players, Phillies play the game with their players, you know, seeing that youth and that, that, you know, lilt, that, that kick in your step or whatever the term is, you know, um, the Mets don't have that, and I think a lot of that's a function of, of whom they chose to bring in. So, Sam, as you get out your stethoscope and your uh, blood pressure cuff there and try to diagnose the patient, what would you say went wrong? Hubris, you know, I, I, again, like Mike said, beating a dead horse, but it just all goes back to the top. Um, and uh Greg in shameless uh, shameless plug uh the uh my Mets movie uh the newest breed uh mentioned about hubris and and how there's too there's too much hubris within this Mets organization going all the way back from from the beginning basically and uh they just they get too uh you know too much cockiness not enough uh, earned confidence, and they they think they know what they're doing. I mean, what keeps getting exposed is not just how old these players are, but how underprepared the young players are. And then they don't even get chances, and now we're talking about Dominic Smith going back down and yada, yada, yada. You know, um, it, it's just here we, here we are again, and it just all has to do with, like Mike said, the way the organization is run. And, and the way that the business model is is uh, is carried out, and the Nationals, I, I I would even say right now the Braves are ahead of the pack just because they were able to recover in such a sound clinical fashion. Uh, the Phillies are are interesting right behind them just because they were they were they you you see the the uh, the fruits of their labor starting to uh, to come to fruition. Uh, with with all these young players that they've been able to accumulate after 
actually having you know making some of these these trades that we were hoping they made la they would the Mets made last year, but instead they just get some some you know single A uh, uh, fastball reliever. So when you look at the Nationals, the Nationals are kind of the ones who who are are kind of in the middle of of what the Mets are doing and what the Braves and the Phillies are doing, and they basically in many ways are doing what we uh, uh, hope the 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 Mets could have done o- over the long term. I mean, people give the Lerner family down there some crap, but they still seem to have uh, uh, more consistency, of course, than than the Mets do, and they have a worse fan base than the Mets do. So it's just like uh, it, it's all bottles of the mind. That's just what it all comes down to. It. It's just there's there's there there is not enough. Uh, uh, there, there's not enough being learned over the years. There's not enough listening. There, there is only, there, there is only uh, uh, just, just um, stubbornness and and cockiness. That's all we, that's all we have, and that's what we're basically dealing with here. I, I think your your point that the minor leaguers are coming up to flushing unprepared was just spot on. How much of that has to do with yeah. the lack of Wally Backman in the system? Lack of Wally Backman in the system, Paul DePodista leaving. He seemed to have everybody prepared. He seemed to have Brandon Nimmo prepared. But it's just like all of a sudden, it's like, hey, the press is talking about how nobody knows how to bunt. We better have some, some photo ops of, of this coach showing everybody how to bunt. It's just, it, it's just everything gets overexposed so fast that all of a sudden, like so many bad corporations and so many bad companies, they're trying to clean up what they, they could have done 10 years ago, uh, but they don't learn quick enough. And then they're 10, 10 years behind the fray. And then by the time they catch up, they're another 10 years behind the fray. And, and this is what we're, we're dealing with here. And I don't, it, it's just, when are we going to have a different conversation? Uh, we don't know. There's, there's, that's, that's why, that's why it's like we, we have to segue at some point to the history of the team or the history of the National League because there's much better things to talk about than what <laughs> we think is the is the future of this ball club because everything because we all we see is the exact same thing happening that we've seen happen over the last fifty years and it's like why should we speculate we know exactly what's going to happen there's, they've shown us they've shown us no other pattern. They've shown us no other pattern. Yeah, you know, it's hard to argue with what you're saying. It, it really is. I mean, it's an organizational philosophy that, with a brief exception of 13, of let's say 12, 13, and 14, you know, Mike, I know you're big on this, where they had a rebuilding plan and they were going with it and all of that. Uh, they traded R.A. Dickey, blah, 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 you know, to restock the farm and, and all that kind of stuff. Other than that, it seems like it's a year-to-year proposition, and every year it's a year-to-year proposition. You know, it's not we're, we're on the path to get somewhere. We're going to do what it takes to get there, stay the course, Mike, as you often say. And But every year it's like they're starting over again, and then they're, you know, they're trying – Okay, this year, how is it going to be different than last year? Then how is next year going to be different this year? And, 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 but then, Sam, to your point, they're, they're, try, they're starting over every year, but they find themselves in the same spot every year. You know what I mean? And n- none of the restarts really work. And, um, and, and that's where we find ourselves right now. 
So, you know, organizationally. And, that, and that's what's so frustrating. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, Rich, but that's what's so frustrating about this missed opportunity is because we, we were talking about it for years that we saw clinically what Sandy Alderson came in here to do. Now, he might have, once, once he finally got to where he needed to be, he might have dropped the ball a little bit uh, and maybe up to, up to uh, uh, you know, to a certain extent of the, the times, like 2012, if you will. But at the same time, like, there was obviously a clear path and a clear-cut uh, definition as to what he was thinking and what the organization was thinking. And then, once again, when you start reacting the way they have, once you start just listening to the back pages and, and you start uh, uh, impulsively uh, going about how you, how you uh, do business, um, and, and it's funny because they're both impulsive and also they, they like to have too many conversations. You, you've heard stories over the years about how it, it always has to go up the higher command, and by the time it gets up to Jeff Wilpon, it's already been traded to somebody else. You know, the, somebody, the player's already been traded. The, t, the, the trade has already gone through. It, it's just like, it, it's, oh, my God, I can't. I'm going around in circles, you guys. I'm going in circles. Well, like <laughs> it's exactly right. It does sound like the Mets. It just it you know it, it it's Groundhog Day every, every winter. It's like okay, tell me if this sounds like the formula. All right, well last year's over. Now we're gonna go in the free agent market, but you know we're not really gonna go after the big guys. You know we we can't go after Manny Machado. We can't go after you know insert name of top tier free agent. But what we're gonna do here is we're going to get a bunch of mid-tier free agents, and that's going to be our team. Well, what about the minor leagues? Well, yeah, we don't really have much of a minor league system, but okay, we'll, we'll just keep signing mid-level players every year and like change like people change their underwear and, and think we're going to get somewhere. And, and, well, you know what? When you stock the ball club with a bunch of mid-level players in free agency every year, how can you expect great results? You, you know, you're – if you're if you're the Yankees of the of the eight of the nineties, you know you're you're always going to sign the top free agent. Okay, great. You have a right to expect to be great because you're signing great players, spend a lot of money. But the Mets are taking the middling strategy. They don't have a minor league system to draw upon to supplement that middling strategy, and you get middling or worse results. And th- and that's where we are. And I think that's what we're all saying is that it's a yeah. lack of an organizational plan, and it's frustrating because look, you can have a five year period maybe couple-year period with no organizational plan, then eventually somebody comes in and says, no, stop the madness. We need a plan. Well, that's not happened yet. Sandy did it for a couple of years. That's true. But they're back to that. They're back to that year-to-year proposition, and it's not working. And why do so, kids coming through the farm seem to be in a hit-or-miss situation? Well, because the organization is cheaping out of scouts and, and signing bonuses and, you know, the different places where they allocate them or the lack thereof and things of that nature. So, you know, it, it's a poison throughout the system, just not in flushing. It, it's a grassroots destruction of, you know, uh, an organization. It, it really you know, is. Once, and, and, and you know somebody's going to write the definitive book, but they literally can't because they, they just can't right now. It, it, it would be too destructive, I guess. But, or somebody is going to come out and finally write the book. And and we're going to have a bit better understanding. It's going to be unauthorized, of course, but there's, they're going to have, have picked apart from many, many different sources as to painting the picture as to, to 
what the Mets are under the Wilpons uh, organization. So now that we've done the I'm sorry, Rich, go ahead. But there's already a ton of documented evidence out there. There's already a bunch of documented evidence out there. Right, but it hasn't been marketed, but it but it hasn't been marketed in 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 a a straight up book. The way like let's say let's take for instance politics aside still, the Michael Wolf, I think that was his name. Not Michael Wolf, but uh 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 he did the fire and fury one. That kind of book. You know what I mean? That kind of book where it just you know it brings right, everything out. You're right, Sam. It hasn't been done. You're right. And you know what? I would suspect there's a reason behind that. Well, I mean, look, look, people give the uh, – um, and I don't, I'm not really taking over, Rich. You go ahead, but I'll ask, I'd like to ask you guys a question regarding this. People call some of these, these uh, reporters, you know, that, that they, they call out the reporters for not exposing it enough. You know, Mark Tarek, before he left, uh, the Mets beat to go to the athletic uh, he, he, he gave them uh, a little bit of crap but the, there hasn't been too too much um, really within the press what, what, what do you guys think Rich I'll go to you since you're hosting what, what do you think about that and do you think they're they're not giving the Wilpons the the, uh, uh, the rage that they deserve quote unquote yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think what happens is the organization is extremely sensitive to public opinion. You see it. You know, oh, they're not bunting. So photo ops, everybody's bunting today. It's all reactionary. They're very sensitive to that. And so I think what the reporters in general are, and this isn't coming from me. I've seen this written down. What people say is that, you know, if somebody really takes the organization to task, that person will be, you know, blackballed or denied privileges or whatever it could be. So they trade their, you know, their honesty and their their ability to be hard hitting for access, and we've seen that speculated on all over the place. Uh, you know, Carrick did it a little bit. Mark Vaccaro does it all the time. I mean, Vaccaro's the exception. You know, he takes them to task on a very regular basis, but it's really that, that's really about where it stops. You know, when, when you read the mainstream media, when you watch the press conferences, it's pretty much softball questions. You know, it's never like, what the hell are you doing with Cespedes? It's like, tell, no, 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 don't just tell us he's doing a running progression. Why has this guy been out for two months? And why is it, and, I, and I, we're going to get into Cespedes later, but why is it that someone says it's his heel, someone else says it's his quad, and someone else says it's his hip? Why is it that in 2018 – you don't even know what's wrong with this guy. And, and what you do know is he's missed two months. But nobody could tell you exactly why. He'll tell you one thing, or he'll tell you something else, somebody else or something else. What the hell? But nobody really asks those questions, right? So, um, and really takes them to task. Weirdly, or takes them to task. weirdly enough, the closest we've come is the, the New Yorker uh, article, <laughs> which Fred Wolf on himself. And uh, the Pedro Martinez book. That's like the closest thing we've really had to like an expose, if you will. Well, and and, and the and I will say the uh, also the uh, the Lay Pastor Dean case, uh, the the uh, the um. I'm trying to come up. What, what was the what 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 was the uh, you know against Jeff Wilpon? But it's not it, it wasn't sexually abusive, but it was. What's the phrase, guys? 
Oh, the one about um, the woman who was yeah, the executive. Because, yeah, yeah, who was dismissed because yeah, she was pregnant right. out of wedlock. Yeah, it was like uh, yeah. What, why am I spacing on on the discrimination? <laughs> I like, like such an ignorance. Work discrimination, whatnot, blah blah. Uh, yeah, work it, right. Thank you. Workforce discrimination. Thank you. Um, harassment. That, that harassment. was the closest work, work, work for it, right? Uh, uh, workplace harassment. That is the closest uh, ideas that we've had to to kind of the inner workings in some fashion, uh, and and of course uh, Tony Bernazard. Um <laughs> But but other than that, yeah, there hasn't really been an expose that really just like takes these these people to task. Where where they really have to come out in full force, and not just against the greatest pitcher of all time, uh, or one of the greatest pitchers of all time, Pedro Martinez, um, <laughs> saying that there's no way we would have done that. That's absolutely uh, atrocious. But like you just have uh, the source after source after source after source that they have to deny. That just hasn't happened yet, and I'm wondering who's the person to do it. And and you know Howard Medgill tried to do it when it came to the finances. Well, Rich touched on the print media. I'll put a talk radio into this because for so many years, this year I'm sensing somewhat uh, a rage emanating out of talk radio and even the guys on TV. It's finally coming through, I think, this year. But for so long, for so long, any any Met fan that called up and tried raging against ownership, they were muted and they were talked out of their opinion and convinced otherwise and they oh you know and the radio talkies and whatnot they always took ownership side and always talked down the fan from the ledge saying you're wrong look what they did this and look what they did that and quite frankly a lot of times i find their opinions to be so astonishingly long and uneducated and they're merely there to just fill time and and you know what that's part of the reason why I started my damn blog 10 years ago. Because they're so just full of themselves and sit around all day just telling each other how great they are. Oh, my God. So, you know, that's my angle. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. You know, it really is. And so, all right, so, so let's go out of order a little bit since we're on this here, you know, we're on the topic of, ownership and, and being taken to task and all that. So, Mike, I'm going to turn to you to comment on something. Um, report came out this week from John Heyman, and Sam, I'll go to you after this, uh, that you know the financial situation in the Mets is pretty good, actually really good, and um, you know, and that going into the offseason, they're financially healthy, all that. And I'll admit, when I read it, I was like, wow, that sounds good. I can live with that. But then, Mike, you know, you you called my attention to an article in the New York Times that basically is, you know, diametrically opposed to that and gave a much different picture. So, Mike, I know you get really into this. So I'm going to ask you to comment on what you've read and where your head is about the uh, the financial state of the Mets. Well, John Heyman can say whatever the hell he wants. I want to know what the source is. I want to know who's feeding him feeding him this information. Because for all intent and purpose, as Sam says, all the little puns do, they're in the business of selling hope. So maybe this is just another strategic leak, you know, to make us all feel a little bit better and pacify us for the time being. All right? But as you alluded to, the New York Times reported 
2015, the Will Ponds refinanced $750 million of all their combined debt. And that puts us over a five-year period, and that puts us within year three. Last year, they were credited $20 million, and this is per Forbes. They were credited $20 million uh, due to overpayments in, in, in pilot monies, meaning uh, payments in lieu of taxes, uh, I believe, over the city field bonds. And they knew they weren't going to have that monies again this year. And lo and behold, they issue a statement in the offseason that they're slashing the opening day payroll by $20 million, the same exact figure that they were credited with last year. You know, so this whole John Heyman report, to me, lies. Nothing but lies. Show me proof. Show me evidence like the Times did and Forbes did. Because Forbes, in an April article this year, said revenue has no chance of being on the rise anytime soon. So where the hell did this report come from? Who is John Heyman's source? To me, this is a load of crap. And as Sam says, another attempt to sell us hope and to get us out to the damn ballpark. That's all this is. Who is this source? And what does he know? Do you know what Good. I want the Wilpons to sell? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Sam. Well, the team... <laughs> just, like, just like... You know, do not pass go, but collect $2 billion. Just get go. Get out of here. No, it boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. A lot of that, you know, in, the, in that Heyman article uh, attributed their uh, financial windfall to great profits emanating from SNY or greater than expected profits emanating from SNY, or whatever the case may be. Lies, lies, lies. I don't believe it. Show me. Show me how you are in better financial health. Don't tell me. Show me. And, right, and as a private organization, you know, they, they don't obviously have to open their books, but show me in your actions that you're in good financial health. You know, and we can get into the specific moves. You know, we'll, we'll phase into that. Um, but Sam, are are you good on on the Wilpons and the finances, or do you have any any other comments on that? Uh, this is what I'll say. I really, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. It really doesn't matter what their finances are; they're still running it. You know what, Rich? You just mentioned something about opening up the books. You know what I learned in, in the course of researching uh, the Dodgers that when the O'Malley's were selling to Fox, there was a conflict of interest because when it comes to negotiating uh, TV rights monies and, and things of that nature, the MLB collectively opens their books amongst each other. Therefore, they can formulate how much they feel they're due from giving you know, TV contract deals. And the fact that Fox was buying the Dodgers uh, represented a conflict of interest because they were on the other side of that transaction and they would, they would therefore be privy to all of Major League Baseball's club's books as owners of the Dodgers. They ultimately got through that and Fox ultimately did buy the Dodgers. But as far as opening up their books, there comes a time during these negotiations, these TV negotiations, 
that all the clubs open up their books amongst each other in order to formulate uh, those dollar figures. Good point. And, you know, who, who really knows? I mean, I, uh, you have, it's interesting though, how you can have two different sources of, of the same thing, right? Because the times paints one picture, Heyman paints another. And, and really, you know, Mike, as you said, it comes down to whom do you wish to believe, right? And if you want to go with Heyman and say everything's great, okay, that's fine. But you're saying you know, there's a, a pretty good lack of sourcing. And the actions that the team seems to be taking would not suggest that they're in great financial health. And we can get into some of those specifically around players you know, as we go forward. But um, so, so moving away from the finances and those two stories, I definitely wanted to get to that. Let's step back to the current team, and then we'll talk about plans going forward, trade deadline and such. Um, but let, let's step back to the current team. And what I'd like to do, guys, is um, give you a thought starter and get, and get your opinion. So I'll, I'll make a couple of comments on the first one, Mickey Calloway. I'm going to ask you guys you know, for your thoughts on Mickey. Um, you know, in my opinion, he, he's going to be a casualty of this whole thing. They're going to lose 90 games, maybe even more. And I don't think he'll survive that. But even beyond that, with a new GM coming in, it's pretty much, you know, writing's on the wall. That new GM will want his own guy or maybe her own guy because Kim Ng is interviewing as well, perhaps. So uh, they're going to want their own person, right? So, and, and I think it's unfortunate because as I look at it, you know, Mickey made some bonehead moves. We all know what they were. I mean, I'll point to one in specific, that, that third game of the Pirates series uh, late June where Familia, we all know he doesn't do well when he pitches multiple days in a row, and he was pitching, I believe, his third day in a row, or at least three out of four. And it was definitely consecutive. And he was he had nothing, and Mickey had nobody up in the bullpen. And the Mets lose the game in the ninth inning, and, and we all know what happened there. So Mickey's made some bonehead moves for sure. But think about what they did. You know, They gave him a bunch of American League coaches, and Mickey's messed up the double switch more than once. So there's that. Um, there's the older players. There's the guys like Rosario, who probably should have been in the minor leagues all of last year, you know, learning his craft, um, and you know, maybe even started the minor leagues this year because he's definitely got a lot of talent, but he's a work in progress. So, kind of feel bad for Mickey. Um, so, Sam, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on Mickey um, and you know the job he's done, and are you in alignment that that it's likely he'll go? Yeah, and I think they've probably analyzed it. Honestly, they may even have at least uh, eight games better, if not more, had it not been for how bad Mickey's been. And, you know, some of his bullpen moves, uh, that whole, you know, he, he didn't warm up Anthony Schwarzak uh, long enough the other day. Uh, like you said about Familia back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, uh, you know, when the writing's on the wall and everybody sees it. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe it's also communication, but... He also seems to be people are talking about him throwing people, throwing players under the bus a little bit right now. Him being a pitcher, and maybe because he's a relief pitcher, so he doesn't he didn't understand it as much. Not being an everyday guy, but I, I that's actually if that's the speculation, I find that hard to believe. So, you know, him, him, I, I think that he he's done enough of a bad job that I can totally understand warranting him being fired as much as as we know that the Wilpons and the, the front office have not put him in the proper position to succeed. He has 
severely messed up with the way he's utilized that bullpen. Um, at least, quite possibly, even 16 of those, those games that we could have made up. Uh, and and any time those games are made up, who knows where the momentum swings after that if you're doing everything correctly. So I think Nicky Callaway has severely messed the Mets' momentum up since being 11-1, and one, and, and he's got to be uh, at fault if they can't turn it around. Yep, I, I'm with you. Mike, your thoughts on Mickey? Does he go, and if he does, is it justified? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, when your bullpen is bad, every move is going to look awful. Uh, but it's interesting that you know that Sandy Alderson was in a room with J.P. Ricciardi, John Rico, and Jeff Wilpon, and amongst the four of them, because the Mets operate under this collegial system, the four of them decided together to hire Mickey Calloway. Three of them remain. Is his dismissal a certainty? I wonder. Should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me personally, there's no dynamic on the field. There's nothing interesting going on. It's still more stationary baseball uh, and somewhat odd lineups. Uh, is American League sent in a National League town, or I should say in a National League part of town, uh, definitely shows. Uh, and you know what? He's becoming somewhat robotic in the face of all this losing. There's not much positive I can say about several months on the job. He's a nice guy and all, but uh, sometimes his answers lack substance. Uh, And, uh, you know, injuries are one thing, but there's something to be said for getting the most out of your players. And as Sam mentioned Earlier in the show, uh, too often times they look so unprepared, and then his answers for it are completely unsatisfactory. But it'll be interesting, you know, to see Richardi, Rico, and Wilpon reconvene about his future. Almost funny. Yeah, it it will be interesting to see what they do, and, and you raise a good point. You know that the peop, even if they get a new GM, uh, a new vice president of baseball operations, or you know whatever that person in charge, um, Rico will likely remain. Manaya definitely will remain. Richardi, who knows? Um, but these are the same people it's who just make so you. Funny, it's just so funny that Omar Manaya is just we're back at it again. It's just, it's hysterical to me. It's just so funny. It's like, you know, Manaya is definitely saying, yeah, well, I guess, just like, and even like, let's say he becomes the GM again. I feel like we can never get mad at, at like, it, you know, like, we can't go through wanting Omar Manaya fired again. It's just going to be like, yeah, whatever. It, it would be a stealth move because the fans just wouldn't care at that point. <laughs> Well, it's yeah, part of the course. It's part of the course. This is his third stint with the Mets, meaning that the Mets don't know how to go off campus. They keep reverting back to the same people. That's why they're bereft of an original idea. 
I mean, I'm not knocking Minai. He's got very good qualities as, you know, a, a player development guy. Well, you know, and we'll get to the new GM search in a bit. I want to wrap up the, the current team. A couple of other things to poke at here from the first half. So, you know, we talked about Mickey, and I think, yeah, you know, I think we agreed. It, it's Well, Sam and I seem to think he's a definite goner. You know, Mike, I think you, you kept the door open for valid reasons. But a couple of other things to talk about. Um, the bullpen. I know everybody, um, everybody likes to pick on the Mets' bullpen, but – Bullpen's been bad. Um, it, it's sad to see what they do to DeGrom. It's sad to see what they've done to Wheeler. So, my God, I mean, Sam, talk to me about the Mets' bullpen. Well, why is it so bad? A lot of arm shuffling in and out. Um, uh, so a lot of inexperience there uh, coming from, from the uh, – some, some impressive arms, even though it hasn't always worked out. Um this uh, what is it? Tom Peterson, I think his name is. He looked pretty pretty good, and they were trying to use him in some more leverage situations. Um, I it, it's just you see just the they're going to have a better time when uh, the team is in Syracuse for sure, and you are seeing how awful uh, having it in Vegas is. But they've also utilized it and made decisions around that so poorly. I just don't think that the bullpen has ever had a, even a chance to to, to get uh, settled into anything. And then Familia, of course, is completely uh, uh, backwards and, and forwards. And I, I would definitely be fine trading him. And I I hope that he's um, I, I hope that he keeps pitching well for his sake, that he can get a he can get a job. Uh, <laughs> and that's the funny thing is that right now you're kind of in the the position where you want these players uh, to, to you know, uh, perform well, and them performing well is going to help the Mets. But at the same time, you, you kind of want these splits to keep happening because you don't, want it, you, you don't want them to lose track of trying to recover this and trying to get everything uh, in order for next year. Um, and, but going back to the bullpen, I, I think the, the, the person that we really need to segue to is Jerry Blevins who has been absolutely atrocious, and I didn't see this coming at all. Well, he was atrocious today. I mean, you know, if you saw the game today, it was it was so classic of what 2018 has been for him. He was getting ahead of people, then he hit people, and when you had 0-2 counts, and oh, my God, it was just god-awful. Um, so, Mike, your thoughts on the bullpen? Uh, you know, Jerry Blevins and all of them, really, uh, not unexpected, more the norm with regards to relief pitchers. There's also that every other year syndrome. Uh, there's their shelf life to take into consideration. Uh, you know, the great bullpens are indeed rare. Uh, and some of them even have um, titles that were given to them that have lasted through decades and the ages, like the Nasty Boys, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I would say... And I'll borrow a line from Branch Rickey, through quantity comes quality. And, and, you know, the Mets bullpen is something that should be built or needs to be built from within uh, with the quality and quantity of, of young arms. And then, you know, you can add a free agent acquisition. One, you know, but when you are consistently trying to build 
a bullpen through the free agent market, this is what happens. And But why would you do that? Again, we've got to go back to the organization and how well you run it is. So in order to have a good bullpen, a sustaining bullpen, you need youth, and the majority of them will come through your system, and then you can make that one big splash or one key acquisition. But numbers-wise, you know, we're talking sometimes, you know, seven, eight, upwards of nine bodies sometimes. Most of them are going to come from within. So you have to pay more attention to the system because that's where, uh, you know, I I think a good bullpen uh, is born. And fair enough. And I think they have the beginnings of that. You know, it it, it may not materialize this year, hopefully next, but you look at guys like – like Gerson, Bautista, I mean, guy throws 100 miles an hour. He's raw as a piece of steak, you know, you take out of the fridge, right? I mean, he, he needs a lot of seasoning, but when you can throw that hard, you've got a chance there. Drew Smith, I mean, the kid seems to have ice water in his veins, you know, at, at 24. Um, so they've got him. You know, they, Rame has good stuff, too. So of the three of them, how many will hit? Maybe one, hopefully two. Um, so maybe, maybe Alderson's strategy last year to put those guys in the system, Mike, could be the beginning of what you're looking for, of having those guys you could, you know, you could bring in from your own system so you're not constantly having to trade or, or sign free agents to bolster your bullpen. Because you're right, you have so many guys out there that it can become a black hole. You have to constantly look outside the organization unless you have guys like that. So hopefully they, they have a little bit of that. Um, and I think we're going to have an ample ch- chance to see them in the back half of 2018. So moving on to other culprits from the <laughs> – oh, we can go on. Other culprits <laughs> from the uh, the front half of of 2018. So, so Mike, I know you wanted to talk about Cespedes a little bit. Um, what is there to say at this point? You know, uh, he's the guy. He's the He's the man that this offense is built around. He's disappeared. It's been two months and three days, and it was supposed to be a 10-day DL thing just to give him some rest to get off the hip. He was playing through it, but he's in a little pain. Okay, fine. Ten days off, he'll be fine. Two months and three days later, the guy is just starting to run the bases. So, Mike, talk to me about Cespedes. <laughs> First, you're going to have to talk me off the ledge. Uh, you know, Cespedes, he came with all kinds of warning signs, and we knew it. We knew it. And I will speak for myself when I say I was delighted when they traded for him at the 2015 trade deadline. Uh, and look what he did. He carried us to a pennant. And I even defended him uh, because he got hurt. Uh, what was it? Doing push-ups in Chicago or pull-ups in Chicago. And, you know, that awful game one he had in the World Series. Uh, I defended him. But ever since, you know, he or well, we're experiencing the very thing that reportedly uh, Dustin Pedroia hates him for. You know, all those attributes that players around the league attributed uh, to his uh, persona and, you know, his aura and his effort and et cetera, et cetera, uh, we seem to be realizing all that now. Uh, and it's unfortunate. Again, I was all for the acquisition and just blowing up in the Mets' face. And, and that's something I've never complained about uh, as a Mets fan, you know, and railed against the organization for. 
again, because I was for it. And, you know, it's unfortunate that because they dabble in free agency so little, or, uh, you know, that every mistake is magnified, whereas other teams, and I'll use the Yankees for an example, where they make multitudes of mistakes that nobody ever talks about because they, you know, strike gold often enough other times. Uh, they had a guy, Kei Gawa, they paid $40 million just to pitch in the minor leagues, you know. If that ever happened to the Mets, uh, flushing Roosevelt Avenue would be on fire. Uh, and, and there's been countless examples, you know, that we can throw from Yankee land towards the Mets. But because they dabble so little and because they have such infrequent success, uh, this is just one time I'm not holding it against anybody. It is what it is. It sucks, and it's a complete loss of money. Uh, the fact that he doesn't talk, talk to the organization, talk publicly, whatever have you, uh bothers me somewhat uh, look at David Wright and, and that's why there are some people who set examples and you know some people fail to set examples uh, throughout David Wright's hardship he's always been available uh, he's been seen on site he's been heard uh, nothing from Cespedes and that's just not right when you're a paid employee you know especially the highest paid employee of the Metropolitan so just it's just a sad, sad, uh, another sad chapter in this long, winding, you know, melodrama. Sam, your thoughts on Cespedes? You know, he's still just one of my favorite players when he plays. And, um, yeah, like, like Mike said, it's, it is unfortunate. I mean, I, I'm holding out hope. I always hold out hope that that this will be the time that it sticks and and he's going to get us. He's going to be on the field a little longer than than he has been. You know, David Wright had everything great to say about him uh, and say and and maybe he was telling the company line when he was saying that there's there's no reason to fear uh, anything. Um, but you know, yeah, I guess I guess you you still have to wonder, but you know. I, I think his I, – honestly, my thing is I think his legs are way too – are wound way too tight. He's so fast. He's so fast, but, but there's just too much power there, and I, I think that's really what you're seeing. I can't attest to anything of this about the attitude or, or anything of that nature, but when I'm thinking about Yohanna Testidus and, and what's going on, I'm just thinking that the conditioning with those legs is just a little off. Could be, and the, the probably the biggest problem isn't that he's missed two months and three days. Probably the bigger problem is that everything we're hearing is that the condition is, is probably chronic, meaning, you know, it, it's never really going to get better. Um, he's going to have to play through it. He's going to have to fight through it. There will be other DL stints. You know, that, that's what we're looking at here. And the other thing we're looking at is, as far as I know, he is still the highest paid outfielder in Major League Baseball. So nobody's going to take that contract. Mets aren't going to eat half of it because that's still $13.5 million a year. Not doing that. So, you know, uh, maybe you guys can give me a quickie on this. There's, um, 
there's thought that maybe Cespedes plays first base next year uh, because certainly the first base, I know you have Alonzo, but Dom Smith hasn't impressed anyone, and he's you know kind of irking a few people, as we've heard lately. So do you think that's a worthwhile management strategy for him to have him play first base, or do you think that's you know kind of silly? Mike, what do you think of that? Well, I say this in jest, but if you know John Heyman is correct and the Mets are flush with money, yeah, eat some of that contract <laughs> and ship him to the American League where he can be a DH and not stress his hip and his leg as much. Uh, but, no, you know, playing him at first base just to me is more the same old, same old of, of the Mets playing key players out of position. I want them to get away from that. And to me, that would just be more of the same. So I would, you know, opt for an, alternate, an alternative route. Uh, and, you know, to put it, frankly, to hell with it. Keep him in the outfield and run him into the ground and get all you can out of them. <laughs> How else can I put it? Dollar on the muscle. Dollar there on the go, muscle Sam. is what he says. Yeah, know, I, hey, fair enough. Run them into the ground, whatever. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how many times the car is in the shop, you just want to keep on trucking. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is Rich, I'm sorry. Did you? Was there a, a, a different question regarding Cespedes? No, same one. I, what would you think about playing? Because it's not this oh, be the first base. time we talked about. Sorry, first base. Yeah, sorry, first base. Yeah, yeah, first base. I think I I totally think that uh, I I can't disagree with anything Mike said. However, uh, it definitely would put less stress on his leg, and he could really just focus on being around that bag, uh, and. And just kind of showing off his athleticism in some fashion. Maybe it would be bad because of those quick turns and those all those just quick stops and how in those moments they're kind of tense. So that 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 would be the only caveat I would say in terms of playing first base and have what it would mean for his leg. Uh, unless the biggest problem is that it he freezes up when he runs too much, and when you lessen the amount of times that he's going to run because you're going to be running more in the outfield. Um, you're never going to be able, even in, the, in the, uh, the AL, you're never going to be able to take away running, and that's where it seems to hurt him the most is when he's in those big, awesome sprints of his, which are so awesome. Let's, you know, it, it is bittersweet because he's such a great sprinter. He's just he's, he's, he's so fast when he gets going, uh, uh, even though he's so big. It's very, um, uh, uh, very bow-like, if you guys will. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on, on it. I I I I miss his athleticism, not the same way that I miss David Wright in in, in any way, shape, or form. Because when you met when with David Wright, even though I think Yohan Cespedes is a Hall of Fame quality player, I think David Wright had serious trajectory towards the Hall of Fame until everything went down. Um, but that's that's really that yeah that's my thoughts on on him in terms of first base. I think that you put him uh, there, thinking you're going to lessen lessen the load. Hopefully his athleticism holds up with taking taking it out of the dirt. And otherwise, like Mike said, run him into the ground because at the same time, you know, you kind of have all these, you know, these Pete Alonzos and Jeff McNeils, and maybe you just need to go with those. In the, in the yeah. infield, at least. 
one stretch for an errant Jose Reyes throw from third, and I can see his quad <laughs> exploding like oh a watermelon up a third-story building. You know, it's funny that you said from a Jose Reyes. You're, you you said that uh, talking about him playing first base next season. Right, right. Like Jose will be there. He might be. You never know. He had two hits today, so that that might be uh, that might be all they need to bring him back. So, speaking speaking uh, of uh, speaking of uh, speaking of leading by example, huh? Well, yeah, uh, the Reyes thing with Rosario. I mean, taking the pop up away from him the other night, and then Reyes looked at him like, "Yeah, you're damn right. I caught that." You know, I mean, it just. But then again, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. But Rosario's not stealing bases, so Reyes clearly isn't teaching him how to steal bases. And um, he, Rosario he, he still stole well the other day. He saw one where he popped up. Yeah, he popped up well. Keith was just like, that's a great pop-up. That was a great uh, pop-up slide, I think he called it. Pop-up slide. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of an impact, right? So so rounding out our thoughts on on this year's team, on on the first half, I want to go to, um, you know, Mike wanted to raise the question of Frazier and Bruce and how they've underperformed, and, and is it possible to buy them out? And I think this is a nice way to wrap up our talk on the first half before we move to other topics because Frazier and Bruce are two guys who we talked about earlier, the wrong profile of guy to bring in, you know, the non-athletic um, home run hitter, one-dimensional offense that when they don't hit a home run, they don't do much else. Um, so, and I'm going to throw Vargas in there too. So Frazier, Bruce, and Vargas. Obviously, all of these guys are not what we need them to be. I would argue the Frazier one because I think they're getting exactly out of Frazier what they would have expected, other than the DL since, because he's never been on the DL before. Now it's the second time this year. But Frazier's hitting for a low batting average. You knew that was going to happen. That's what he does, right? He hits some home runs. It's for a low batting average. I think the one area where he's disappointed is in the field a little bit defensively. But everything he was is what he is. So why would they be surprised by his performance? They're getting bad performance, and that's what he has been lately. Anyway, so if the Mets are in good financial health, we talked about that. If they're serious about winning, we talked about that. They would probably buy out one, two, or all three of Vargas, Frazier, and Bruce. And when I say buy them out, maybe try to move them and pick up most of the salary just to get them the hell out of here. Um, now, I don't think that would happen, but Mike, I know uh, you wanted to talk about this a little bit, so so why don't you tell me your thoughts on Frazier, Bruce, and I'm going to throw Vargas in there, and would you agree that eating one of those contracts at least would say, yeah, we are financially healthy and we are serious about winning, but go ahead. Two contracts would satisfy me, really. One would be nice, two would satisfy me. Addition by subtraction, eat the money. Eat the money on at least two out of those three. Trade off assets at the trade deadline and during the off season, and, and you're going to basically break even because the money's already spent. All right, so you're going to save money when you trade off assets and you buy these guys off and you break even. You you know you spend no more, you spend no less. But you know if if you're going to go about rebuilding this or retooling this wisely well, then take a year and get this done, you know, and stop prolonging the agony. So, yes, by all means, if John Heyman is right, once again, and they're flush with cash, do it because it's smart and it does make financial sense. Eat, eat Frazier's contract, eat Bruce's contract, 
You threw in Vargas. I wasn't even thought it, thinking about him, but you're damn right. He's in the same boat. So, you know, two of, two of the three would really, really satisfy me. It would show me that they're acting with conviction and that they're finally, you know, uh, uh, about to do things in a more effective manner. Sam, your thoughts? Um, I I think that uh, I'm I'm sorry. Could you could you repeat the question, Rich? So the question <laughs> is: um, You have <laughs> Frazier and Bruce and Vargas, three guys who are making a lot of money, who you're getting nothing from, right? Nothing. I okay. That's where that's where I thought that's where we we were. I just wanted to make sure before I started talking Frazier, I needed to get all the other the other uh, eggs in the same basket, if you will. So it's that it's that Denver <laughs> attitude. Man. Yeah, it's it's that yeah, it's, it's that Denver altitude, then some. Um, I I think that especially uh, uh, with like like you guys said, Frazier, uh, Bruce, and Vargas, all big contracts making nothing. Yeah, it, it would show that, and and I still would need to see something better than what they got from Bruce last year, uh, or or something you know just a little bigger of of an impact. Than they had than than we are currently seeing from the people that they brought back last year. I just think that's the number one thing. Now, if you're and that's the problem is that if you're still getting nothing though, I mean, are you are are they going to be in the same negotiating place that Sandy Alderson was last year? I I, I don't know. I mean, who's going to take Vargas right now? Is it just is, is everybody going to think that it's the same Matt Harvey situation where they all need uh, new situations? I mean, I still think that Bruce can perform here. And what are you going to get if Bruce isn't performing up to the, the task that he's supposed to be? So um, I, I think that it, it would uh, uh, be stealth if they could move all three. But they've got – I have to see what they, they bring back. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to keep getting fleets. Well, right. There are numerous ways to go about it. You, you could try to find a taker for these guys, and, and I, God only knows. I, I'm not sure you would, um, even if you ate most of the contract. Maybe Frazier, a team might look for him to be, you know, a third baseman pinch hitter. I don't know. Um, Bruce, with the most recent injuries and the underperformance, I don't think anybody's going to take him. And damn right nobody's going to take Vargas. You'd have to buy these guys out and just make them go away. But But to Mike's point, you know, Doing so would send a message, right? It would send a message of accountability to the team, send a message of, you know what, we messed up, fans. You know, we brought in some guys who uh, did not work out, and we're going to correct it. You know, we're going to get rid of these guys now, and and we're going to do better. You know, we're, we're going to repopulate the team with, with better players, bottom line. And, and it would really send the right message. But I don't see it happening. I don't think either one, any one of the three of us sees that happening. It's just – whether it's the finances, whether it's so unmets-like, it just seems like it, it's not going to happen, and that's the shame of it all. And, and now, now you've got now, Frazier. And, and, and uh, sorry to cut you off, but, but since I'm now a little bit back on track as to what Mike was talking about completely, um, <laughs> it would be nice. It would be nice if uh, um, Rico was like, you know what? There's a new sheriff in town, and 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 talk to Jeff. I mean. At this point, don't you don't you think that that there has to be if there's anybody who has just ear, you, you know, you'd have to think it's got to be John's. I mean, and John and Omar are probably buddy buddy, and then JP's just chilling from from uh, you know being part of the Sandy crew. 
so I, I think that you have to think that it's the Omar and, and uh, Rico squad. And if they were like, you know, at, at this point, shouldn't there be nobody more capable of understanding the fan base than those two folks, especially with the Queens boy in, in, in Omar? I mean, like, like you know, you keep talking about how you grew up uh, uh, rooting for the Mets. Well, like, show us. Show us that you love us and you know and understand us like Pedro does. Pedro gets us. Pedro gets us. <laughs> uh, it's a relationship, right? You have to get the other person. It's a, it's a fan-to-team relationship. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move now. We, we've talked about the first half. we talked about the finances, which probably makes sense logically to get to this place. Trade deadline is coming. Uh, two weeks from Tuesday is a trade deadline. And um, so you have the triumvirate of GMs, which some could say that makes it hard to make moves because you have to have, you know, triple agreement. Some could say that, well, they're not going to do anything because they're going to want the new GM to come in in the fall and have that person make the decisions in the, in the winter, and that may be true. So given all of this, given all of what we're talking about, three GMs, likely none of them will be the permanent one. Um, but you could also look at DeGrom's value. We've heard this a bajillion times, higher than it will ever be, all that stuff. Syndergaard, maybe not quite at the top, but one thing is true. I heard this on Ed Randall's Talking Baseball this morning. You had Bob Nightingale, on a, a, a USA writer, a, a national writer for baseball, and he was saying, right now there's such dreadful starting pitching on the market that if you dangle somebody out there who's any good, you're going to get a haul back. So you have that. You have the Mets being in flux. Should we wait until the new GM is in, or are, can these three guys be trusted? Is it the right time to start selling off a major piece or two? So, Mike, I'll go to you first on this one. What's going on? What's going to happen in the next two weeks? To encompass your entire scenario in question, that decision can easily be made right here, right now, by ownership, i.e. Jeff Wilpon. He has to be the one to decide right now, listen, start initiating plan A, which is tearing it down. You guys start, we'll get the GM, and he'll continue forward. You see, but all that can be eliminated by ownership right now with the directive, looking at his three lieutenants and saying, what do we do now? You see, I think Jeff trusts Omar the most, but he's going to make Rico the face. Richardi, to be honest, I think he's out the door. I think he's leaving on his own, of his own volition. Now that Sandy's gone, he's out the door. And the Wilpons have a history of relying on people that they only know well and that, you know, these people know the Wilpons in return as well. Uh, but all this can be eliminated with one directive and a clear challenge to his lieutenants and say, do this and do this now. I'll get a GM later, throw him in on the plan, and he'll continue mission. Don't lollygag. Please don't lollygag. Again, conviction. Do things. Uh, we we'll, we'll, let's circle back around to that money. Eat some of these contracts and trade away players. It will be a wash. They won't feel the sting. And continue forward 
and populate this organization with young players. doesn't matter who's, you know, in charge below Jeff Wilpon at this point because the message and directive must come from him. His subordinates must carry through his directive. You see what I'm saying? Chain of command. Ideally, I want a president of baseball operations separating Jeff Wilpon from, you know, baseball stuff, but that's not the way it presently exists. But Jeff Wilpon can tell his three lieutenants, do this and do it now. No questions asked. There's no meeting. There's no debate. There's no arguing, you know. There's no bouncing around. It's a clear directive. Do this and get it done, period. That's what I want. So, Mike, you want action now. I get it. Um, so, But do you want them to trade DeGrom and Syndergaard and any, anything not nailed down, or do you want them to hold on to any particular piece? I want them to do what's smart. I will listen to any and all offers. If somebody wants to give me the house for Jacob DeGrom, and I do mean a haul, I perhaps would entertain it because how could you turn it down? Again, I'll play devil's advocate and say 30 years old is right around the corner. And by the time he becomes a free agent, it's not cost-worthy to re-sign him to a long-term deal. He probably wouldn't accept anything less than five years. So the Mets are probably smart by trading him. You know, as a fan and somebody who likes the guy, who never wants to see him go, it would hurt. It would sting. Do I want to see him go? No, Rich, absolutely not. But if the price is right, sell, sell, sell. That's the American way. And that goes for anybody. If you're going to overwhelm me for my goods, by all means, have them. You know, but if I'm getting ripped off, stop knocking on my door and ringing my phone. If that's your intention. You understand? I just want them to do smart things. If I can trade a, a, a player that's rated B for a player that's rated B+, plus, Rich, I'm making that trade. If I can upgrade from a C to a B-, minus, I'm making that damn trade, you understand? Now, if I could trade the ground for four A's, I'm making that trade. But don't insult my intelligence as a representative of the New York Mets. That's where my head is at. So if the right price doesn't come along, you don't make the trade. You don't force the trade. You don't force the issue. You stick with what you got, and you build around it. You know, so I just want them to do this smartly. But no one's untouchable. No one's untouchable. Tom Seaver forced the Mets' hand. They had to settle for that package. On paper, it might have been a nice package. You know, they were getting their the Reds' top uh, outfield prospect in Henderson, you know, quote-unquote, and Pat Zachary, who, I don't know, had some of the claim attached to him, and two other prospects. Big deal, whoop-de-doo, and Doug Flynn won a gold glove. You know, but that the Mets' hand was forced in that scenario. Right now, the Mets, are oper- you know, they're operating from a position of strength. They have the high ground. But if you don't act, you know what they say. There's only two people in life, the quick and the dead. So act swiftly and smartly. Strong argument. Sam, what do you want to do at the trade deadline? I think it also it also hinges on what Jacob DeGrom wants to do from a long-term perspective. Who cares what he, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Sam, but who cares what he wants? 
I'm no, I mean in terms of I want. I, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about whether he wants to be traded or not. I'm talking about whether he wants to sign with us long term. And if the Mets understand that knowledge, they have to act accordingly and also make sure they get the right return for it. I think that is, you know, Noah Syndergaard, they have a little bit more flexibility on because they have uh, about a year. I think it's only about a year. Yeah, it's only a year. But, um, yeah, that's that's basically, if we're talking about Jacob DeGrom specifically, uh, other than, you know, the idea of sell, sell, selling, let's go to Jacob DeGrom specifically. Um, I, I want to know what he wants to do and whether he trusts this organization. David Wright trusted this organization. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't worked out for the organization or David Wright, but we, it, you know, he made a pledge to the organization. He's still there out front, even when he's injured. Um, the question is, what does Jacob Degrom want to do? And that, that, that is going to, if I'm the Mets, definitely uh, make me think exactly long and hard about about what I want to do in this situation. So it's an interesting call, right? Because, you know, if you read Joel Sherman this morning, he was talking about how all the evidence points to the Mets being mildly active at the trade deadline. It's probably driving Mike crazy, but um, he said that <laughs> the evidence really points to that, you know, because mildly they're going to pro- <laughs> they're probably going to default to um, by being a little bit pregnant, right? They're they're probably going to default to you know just trading off um, Cabrera and uh, and Familia, and maybe Wheeler, maybe not. But you're not going to see anything major, and they're going to then point to the fact, well, you know, we want to make sure we have our GM in place and all that kind of stuff at the end of in the off season, and that's when we'll really get active. And that's what Sherman is pretty convinced. Um, And in that article, we were talking about this before. In that article, he says that another reason they might not rip it all apart is um, apparently Fred Wilpon points to to it and says, look. I don't have the stomach for a rebuild. I'm 81 years old, and I want to win again. You know, before I I, um, I move on and into the next world. So, um, if you put all that together, I think that's I think that's what you're going to see, guys. Hate to say it, I think you're going to see them trade off expiring contracts, get back a, a Class A player or two. I'm killing me to say this, and that's going to be the end of it. You know, I. I I could be wrong. You know, maybe they do. Maybe they get they get blown away for a Degrom or a Syndergaard. Maybe they they find a way to package a few guys, you know, and and get something back in return. Get a bunch of young players back. Maybe that will happen. But the biggest part of me says they're going to point to the well. You know, we, we have a permanent GM coming. We want that person to make the decisions. And so we just traded off existing contracts and we got another couple of Class A relievers and. If that's the case, the fan base is angry now. Fan base is going to be more angry in August and September, and there will literally be no one at City Field, which there already isn't. But um, but I think that's what's, going to, that's what's going to happen. As much as I don't like agreeing with Joel Sherman after his Cespedes comments, um, I'm going to agree with him and say I think that's what we will see. Not saying that's what I want, but I do think that's what we will see. Um, so, all right, so moving on then, we've talked a lot about the next GM. And so now let's fast forward. We're through the season. It's at the point of trying to figure out, okay, who's the next GM going to be? We touched on this a little bit in our last podcast, but 
so, Mike, I'll go to you on this one. The profile of the next GM, like what would be a characteristic or two you'd like to have? A trend breaker. All these trends in baseball, I want somebody to start going against the trends. And I want somebody, you know, and I'm speaking figuratively here. I want somebody who's going to say, look, you see that shift? You hit the ball the other way. See that run on first? I want him advanced to third base. See all those strikeouts? I want them cut down. And I want this instructed started at the rookie level. And I want it advanced all the way through the AAA level until it ultimately reaches flushing. This is the operation we're going to have. And that's the kind of man I need to get this done. I want a baseball man. I don't want a statistician. I want a baseball man who will have a staff of sabermetric people on hand to supply information. But ultimately, I want a baseball man who will incorporate all his information and instincts and experience and acquired knowledge in how the game is played through a bird's eye view, not some report. I want somebody who's going to instill fundamentals and an organizational-wide standard. And I want somebody who's going to keep ownership away from operations. I want this person to be so qualified that he dares tell ownership, if you don't leave me the fuck alone, I'm out of here. Go find somebody else. But if you leave me alone and let me operate a baseball organization the way it should be run, I promise you success. And that's the words I want coming out of my future general manager. I don't know if that answered your question, Rich. I think I might have strayed. If you want to put no, me back on track, by all means. But that's no, where my did. head is at, man. So an independent thinker, somebody who doesn't know the Wilpons from Jane Doe. Because that's the trend the Wilpons need to break. Everyone who has run their organization has had a long-standing relationship with them. It's inbred outside of Sandy Alderson, who is mandated upon them by the commissioner. Otherwise, they face the same fate that Frank McCourt faced with the Dodgers. But because they're chummy-chummy, this is the treatment that the Wilpons receive. And that's why I need an independent thinker who will do things the right way, who will demand that baseball be taught, practiced, and played the right way. I want them to be a flexible organization. Everyone loves the long ball, but I want them to be able to manufacture runs as well. Okay? I like strikeouts. Who doesn't? But I want pitchers who know how to become craftsmen. You understand? And I need somebody who's going to instill this within the organization from the bottom to the top. That's what I want. Mike, I'm with you. I I, I can't really add to that. I mean, I want cultural change is needed. You don't get a cultural change. By making Omar Minaya the GM, you don't. You, you, you uh, Minaya could be what he does. He could be a great scout. You know, he he could work Latin America like he's had in the past. Great. 
but you don't change culture. It's like the thing that drives me most nuts, and the Cardinals did it this morning. They fire Matheny, and they make their their bench coach the um, the manager. It's like, what are you doing? You know, in rare instances that might make sense if the manager himself was was an issue, but typically you have to change the culture when it's not working, and you don't do that by taking somebody from inside the organization. It has to be somebody from the outside. So, Sam, what are you thinking? What's your what's your uh, birthday wish list here for a GM? That, just outside the organization, right? Just, like, finally have somebody come here and have a straight vision that doesn't need to always be uh, – uh, have to go through the, the uh, operating uh, a guy who's Mr. Wilfon. Um, every like you really can't add anything to anything that you guys have, have already said. It's just it's absolutely you know just the way it is. It, it, but unfortunately, we know that we're just going to keep getting the same cycle. Uh, if they really want to, if they really want to change our minds and stop the narrative somehow, some way. You know, I mean, I'm sure, like, they go, like, oh, why are they talking about us like this all the time? Well, I mean, like, we're, we're pretty explanatory. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, that's, that's it. It's just, it's now or never. It really is. It's now or never. Or just pass, go, and collect $2 billion. <laughs> Sam, I, yeah. I think you nailed it earlier in the show. I said it once, and I'll say it again. The minor leagues are... are coming to flushing and they're just utterly unprepared. That's stuck out in my mind since the moment you said it. Yep. They really are. They, you know, and you, you look at other teams, right? You look at the, those young guys the Braves have, they, they're not going through what Dom Smith and Rosario are going through. I mean, those guys are much better at, well, Rosario's a good athlete, but how come other teams, guys, when they get to the major leagues, they seem better prepared? It's just the truth, you know. And, and the, first of all, the Mets don't have a lot of guys to bring up, and the ones that they do, I think Gary Cohen even talked about this the other day. He was saying that, you know, people wanted these guys up, and they came up, you know, in August of last year. Maybe they weren't ready. You know, may, maybe it was a little bit of giving in to the screaming of the fan base to bring these guys up. And... um and maybe that had something to do with it, you know. Um, uh, I, all right. So I question the ahead. education they're receiving through the course of, you know, traversing the minor league. I, I see no fundamental, no no foundation uh, that they're working on and building upon at a, at every stage. How else can you explain their utter lack of preparedness? Yeah. Right. There's no arguing that. You're right. They need to invest. It's everything we've been talking about. They need to go outside the organization, invest in scouting, invest in development coaching, all those things that they seem not to be doing. And um, and you see and you see why you have to do it. You know you you see guys who are unprepared. You see other teams whose players are prepared. And you see that you lose to those teams. You know it, it's not a hard formula to follow. Um, all right, so moving on to some other topics here. All-Star game uh, this week, and Jacob DeGrom's an all-star, as well he should be, uh, even though the team has totally screwed him in terms of wins and losses. So um, let, let's go to all-star game memories or all-star memories. Anything jump out at you, Sam, about the all-star game or you know, the all-star week that 
that uh, stands out as a great memory? It's got to be 2006. It's just like the first thing that goes to, to me, um, you know, it's just uh, uh, seeing David Wright and Carlos Beltran in, in there. Uh, and I think there's a sad memory included in that. But, no, <laughs> Billy Wagner Billy, – Billy, Billy Wagner blew 2008 so the Phillies could win at home uh, in the All-Star game. But who blew – oh, Trevor Hoffman, right? I believe so. Is that right? 2006, yep. Trevor I Hoffman so. blew the game and the Mets – Chances, but it didn't matter. Home field advantage for the Mets because, well, that's uh, those are some. Oh, and Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson. Now, uh, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't um, really cognizant enough and paying attention enough to baseball when I was four. Um, but I know that Bo Jackson made a splash, and I love. I just Bo Jackson's one of my favorite highlight reels. He is arguably the greatest athlete I've ever watched on video, and uh, I wish I could have seen him play. Fair enough. Mike, all-star game memories. Well, Jackson was indeed freakish. Uh, All-star memories. I might go back a little bit. Lee Mazzillian, 79, hitting a home run in Seattle. Uh, uh, Fred Lynn's grand slam uh, in the early 80s sticks out. Uh, that whole gathering, I believe, at Fenway Park, uh, where they brought, I mean, just everybody. Was that the All-Star game? Am I recalling that correctly? Yes, you what are. What year was that? Yeah. 99. Uh, right. That, that was something else. That was incredible. Uh, those really stick out to me. I enjoyed the All-Star game a lot more as a kid than I do now, I'll be honest with you. All the All-Star games from any any circuit, any sport, uh, they, they never really they never really gripped me. Uh, but I was a fan of the All-Star game more as a kid uh, than I am now. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, I think that's a common sentiment. I, I certainly am, too, in that boat, you know. Uh, Ed Randall was talking about it this morning, how the only time you saw the other league, so to speak, unless you were in New York, of course, or the Bay Area where you have both Chicago, um, was in the All-Star game or obviously in the World Series. So it meant more. Um, My All-Star game memory would be, I have two, 2013 had the opportunity to attend and um, at Citi Field, and that was just amazing. I mean, being there with my daughter, I think I mentioned that before, pretty strong life event there. Um, and also the fact that Harvey and Wright were on the field as starters was was amazing. So that, and then Mike, you'll remember this one, 1984, the Mets were on the come essentially, right? And um, and Dwight Gooden takes the mound in San Francisco and he struck out the side. And for people who didn't know who he was, it was like, wow, who the hell's that guy? Who the hell's this 20 year old out there doing this? And or maybe 19, I think he turned, no, he was 19, and. Um, just striking strikes out the side, you know, that last strikeout, Carter flipped the ball back to the mound and just saying, hey, that's our guy. You know, we, we've stunk for a while, but we're, we're coming, man, and that guy's going to lead the way. That was such a nice moment for a Mets fan. You're right. That one was awesome. And you know what? And I'll throw this one out there as well. 1975, four Mets made the All-Star game. Remember watching that one? Kingman, Seaver, Matlock, and who was the fourth? Kuzman? Yeah, and Matlock got the win, right? 
I believe so, yes. He did. He came in late and he got the win. Um, so, okay, cool. All right. So, guys, you know, as we start to turn the corner here a little bit, just, just a couple of couple of more questions, then we'll move into to our, our final items of business. So, in the back half of the season coming up, what do you want to see? Um, you know, what do you want to see from the Mets in in the back half of what has been a bad season? But you know, they they have to play. What is it? Sixty five more games ish. Sixty four, sixty five more games. So, what do you want to see coming from that, Mike? We'll start with you. Uh, I want to see Jose Reyes off the field, and I want to see. <laughs> and it's, it's not enough. I say that because I want them to clear room for T.J. Rivera, who's coming back later this summer from Tony John surgery. Okay, so there's a specific reason, but yeah, I want him off the team, and I want to see that happen in the latter half of the season. Uh, I would like to see some more improvement as of, uh, out of Mesoraco. This way, we can make a bit of determination for his future as a Met. And I want to see uh, Gesellman Lugo. Uh, improve, and I want to see Wheeler continue to uh, establish himself and show everybody that, okay, my time has finally come. After all these years and all this waiting, my time has finally come. So I want to see some quality pitching out of out of Wheeler. Uh, I can go on, but those are my, my, my big ones. And Conforto, improvement out of Conforto. Boy, that, boy is that needed. Um... Sam, how about you? What do you want to see in the back half? Preparedness. I want to see everybody prepared. And and that's the biggest thing. I mean, you know, you're mentioning Wheeler. Wheeler's been the most prepared I've seen him ever, uh, and that might get him traded. Great. Um, <laughs> basically, that, that that's it. I just I want to see everybody prepared and playing the game right. And what more can you ask for? Do I want more wins? I mean... Who doesn't? Like, you're always going to have it in your back of your mind to say, oh, my God, what if? You know, because it's never over until you're officially eliminated. But, you know, yeah. Like, that's it. That's what I want to see. More wins, better prepared. I like it. I like it a lot. And, um, you know, Mike, I'm going to extrapolate your comment out a little bit. You want to see – the shedding of some of the dead wood, right? Um, not, not just right. Reyes, but right. Uh, not, not just Reyes, but any start to get some of these useless players out of here, and, and hopefully, whether it's via, well, it has to be via trade because they don't have much other than Alonso and McNeil. Going, I want them going Paul Bunyan on all this dead wood. <laughs> Chop it down. Um, but I think that would help. You know, I think if they get some of this dead wood off the roster, and the prop. That's the problem, though, right? Because you have Alonzo and McNeil, but you don't have anything else. And so it, it's all tied together. You have to make some trades to bring in the young people to replace the Deadwood. There's just not a lot there. And it just it all comes full circle. It's all interconnected. Um, well, in the meantime, get them on the field. Whatever you got, get them on the field. McNeil and, uh, and Alonzo? Whatever. No, maybe not so much Absolutely. Alonso. You don't want to rush him along. But, you know, you eliminate Reyes and you ensure that Wilma Flo- – I know you don't like him, but you ensure that he stays on the field at least. And all these all the guys and younger guys stay on the field unhindered. Get rid of all this dead wood. Because that's not the direction you want to be headed in. It's not the direction that we agree upon at the present moment. It's not the direction, period. 
So eliminate them and just start bringing people in and let competition rule the day. Well, you know, to the point about Flores, though, from what I read just the other, like, midweek, apparently a lot of teams are asking for him. And you can see why. The guy can flat out hit. I mean, he can. He he can hit, and we used to say he can hit lefties, but he can hit everybody now. And and I think he's eminently tradable because you have T.J. Rivera. I mean, does T.J. Rivera have, have as much power as Wilmer? No. Does he have the knack for the walk-off? Well, wait, probably wait, so, not. Uh, guys, guys, can I cut in real quick? I cut saw in. a headline that said he was taken. Uh, I, I, I uh, saw that T.J. Rivera was taken out because of elbow issues. He was, uh, because of soreness. And they're trying to figure out if, if it's normal soreness coming off of surgery, okay, give him a couple of days off, or if there's something wrong. And I don't think that, that part has come out yet. Yeah, but you're right. He did. Okay. He did. Okay. Yeah, he left last night. Um, hopefully it's just, you know, look, you had your arm cut open, it's a little sore, give him a couple of days and he's fine. Um, because I do think if you can get a prospect back for floors and you have Rivera ready to step in, do it. I mean, do it. It's you, you, you know, you get a decent prospect and you have Wilmer Flores light and, and Rivera, probably better defender, and you just you move him. But anyway, all right, guys. So we're into our last uh, our last segment here, and since this is the 14th episode of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, we'll talk about baseball in New York in 1914. Which um, okay. You know, 1914, what was going on in the world at that point? Well, World War I was just starting. and But, you know, baseball had been a thing for a while, and uh, baseball in New York had been a thing for a while. So, Sam and Mike, take it away. What 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 was going on in baseball in New York in, in, in 1914? Mike, you want to take the Robins first? You want to take the Robins first? They are indeed the Robins. Uh, you know, the days of the bridegrooms are gone. Uh, in the, in the standings, not much has changed. They finished fifth in 1914, 75 and 79. But things are about to change. Now the partnership between Evitz and, and the McKeever brothers, Stephen and Edward, is in full effect. Uh, so whereas Evitz was more the administrator, the McKeevers were more the bankrollers. And slowly but surely, starting in 14, they started to uh, spend more money on players that Everett was previously unable to uh, in the days leading up to the building of Everett's Field. And, you know, it started paying off two years later. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But nevertheless, I think 1914, 1913 are the years that we should importantly identify the McKeever brothers as coming on board. And they they're the ones who financially started turning around the fortunes of the Dodgers. Sam. Yeah, uh, this is the second year of Ebbets Field, as he was saying. You know, when you're looking at these these uh, these guys, Casey Stengel's still there. He uh, he batted 316, making a making a good run for himself in his uh, his sophomore go, 404 on base percentage. Um, Casey Stengel is probably exactly the type of guy we would need at the the top of the lineup right now, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at his age uh, now, he'd be fine, yeah. Oh, man, you know what? I'd rather a Casey Stengel hologram than whatever we got going on right now. Um, <laughs> Zach Weeks, 
Zach Wheat, our future Hall of Famer, batting 319 with a 377 on base percentage, slugging 452. Uh, nine home runs, 89 RBIs. Those 89 RBIs, uh, definitely Hall of Fame worthy in this era. My God. Um, yeah, 75 79 record, finished fifth, which was actually not bad for the, the Brooklyn Robins. And, um, uh, you know, Wilbert Robinson, of course, being the manager and the reason why they were nicknamed the Robins. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it goes back to that, you know, that lovable losers mentality is that they still had a lot of endearing qualities during a, during a phase that was indeed not all that, uh, not all that exciting, although we're coming up on some excitement. And I'll, I'll throw a couple words in about the Yankees in 1914. Well, um, the Yankees were 70 and 84, so and they finished sixth in an eight-team American League, and they drew a robust 359,477 fans. So they it wasn't hard to get a ticket. Um, they played at the Polo Grounds in 1914. And their manager was, well, they had two, so they must have fired this dude. They, they must have fired Frank Chance as the season went along and replaced him with Roger Peckinpah. Um, Roger was 10-10. and now, 10, is Frank so Chance? Frank Chance, yeah. Um, um, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I think Frank Chance was part of the, the um, Tinkers to Evers to Chance. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, or anybody. Or anybody you might be anybody? right. No, that's, yeah, that's the one, Frank Chance. That's the one. That's right, indeed yes. the one. Tinker Savers to Chance, which was the, the Cubs, correct? The Cubs infield, yes. Great. Nicely done, Sam. Nicely done. No, very good. I would not have picked up on that. So um, it would appear that Roger Peckinpah was put in, in you know, toward the end of the season. He only managed for 20 games. He was 10-10. and 10. Um, And the Yankees played the polo grounds, as we said. And, again, like I say every time we do this, when you wrap that in context, World War One was just breaking out. My God, was that a long time ago. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. So when you think about that, my goodness. All right, guys. So now it's time to move to the number 14. And, um, well, you know, when you think about the number 14, you know, one, one thing comes out in, in Mets history. But I'm going to let you guys take it. So, Mike, um, as – the most famous person to wear 14 had a very strong Brooklyn tie and you still live in Brooklyn. Why don't you start us off? Uniform number 14 for the Mets. Tragic. I can't think of of another word. Just a a tragic end to a a wonderful life, if I can borrow a term. Uh, They called him the quiet man, but, uh, you know, he carried a big stick. He commanded respect. Uh, with the Dodgers and with the Mets. Uh, what can I say? I think the Mets would have been a vastly different organization had uh, he lived and, and guided the Mets forward. But, uh, you know, when I was a, a, a wee little boy of uh, five and six, uh, his motorcade passed his five, you know, uh, all the adults on the block, it was in April. Uh, so I wasn't in school yet. That would explain why I was home. But everyone who was home on the block came out and uh, took me along with everybody else up the block. And sure enough, the motorcade passed by. He was buried. 
at Holy Cross Cemetery, and I lived on one of the dead-end blocks there off Snyder Avenue. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't understand what was going on, obviously, but it was explained to me, and that day perhaps marks uh, the beginning of my education of the Brooklyn Dodgers and and, and, and the Mets, for that matter. Uh, but uh, a lot of Brooklyn Dodger fans on that block, a lot of Mets fans, uh, not a Yankee fan to be found. Uh, and lo and behold, he was just, uh, you know, within hundreds of feet, uh, you know, interred within a hundred, hundreds of feet from where I lived at the time. Uh, Mr. McKeever's also uh, interred at Holy Cross Cemetery, but still, I just, you know, that's a, that's a personal thing. So, you know, baseball wise, uh, to me, just comes secondary. It's just ponderous to me that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Because at the time mm. of his retirement, uh, his numbers uh, reflect as somebody who is a titan in the game, particularly the 50s. Sam, you your thoughts on Gil Hodges or anyone else who wore 14? Well, I, uh, I moved a block away from Holy Cross Cemetery inadvertently uh, the day that the Mets lost game one of the World Series. I visited Gil Hodges' plot, and, um, you know, I can't imagine what Mike went through, but, you know, as I've studied it, and as you can tell just from listening to Mike, it, it, it is just goes back to the roots of many things that are wrong with this organization. It might have thrown everybody off, including M. Donald Grant. And even if he had a lot of tendencies, they probably still would have been there. But um, the organization would have been in a better position to make better decisions, most likely. And, and maybe they wouldn't have been as reactionary if they still had that steady hand and steady guide uh, of a man who... Uh, everybody attests as being the number one reason outside of the talent, of course, as to, you know, why they won the World Series. And, and most of everybody in that talent says that that they couldn't have done it without Batman. So, um, you know, that's, that's what you think about with number 14. And, and when you think about his Brooklyn era, uh, you have to – yeah, it's just nothing Nothing says uh, that he isn't a Hall of Famer based off of uh, his contemporaries. That's just the bottom line. And and the reasons why he hasn't been voted and hadn't been voted into the Hall of Fame are atrocious reasons to and bring up so many different flaws for the way not only the thought process of, of many of these, these writers – but also of the voting system itself. And on top of other things we don't need to get into details about in terms of the, the Veterans Committee. But, you know, these are people who said that, well, you can't let the, all of the Brooklyn Dodgers in. You can't let all of the boys of summer in. And it's like, well, why not if they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? It's like that's just poor judgment as far as I'm concerned when, when going about uh, going about voting people in. You want to vote the best, vote the best. And Gil Hodges was the best, uh, arguably the best first baseman of, of the, the 50s. So, 
frustrating when thinking about that. And, um, you know, uh, he's obviously takes the cake considering that his numbers retire for it. Ron Svoboda and Ken Boyer briefly wore it. Uh, Ron Svoboda wore it um, April of 65, all of 65, basically. Uh, Ken Boyer wore it in for for all of 66 and part of 67. And then Gil Hodges was back with the team in 68 as the manager, and the rest is history. So that's uh, number 14. It is tragic. But it's still bittersweet. It really is bittersweet because what a great man. What a, what a, uh, his son is also excellent. I've had a chance to talk to his son, uh, Junior, Gil Hodges Jr., uh, a, a bunch, and, and he's, um, he's a fascinating man and a, a, a fantastic individual. And, um, it, it's, it really also, you got to speak to what he means to Brooklyn, uh, and he married a Brooklyn girl. She she's still there. Joan is still with us in Brooklyn, and um, I believe at the house on Bedford Avenue, and and that's it's it, it's still it just number fourteen makes me. It's my favorite number. It's uh, for for it's my favorite number from a baseball perspective. From 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 a a, a perspective of what I would want to wear on the field, other than nine, because nine is my my number. My my favorite number, but I generally, like when I was on softball leagues, I would wear number 14. I wouldn't wear number nine. I'd go with number 14. I'd always lean on, on Gil Hodges. Um, and, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it, I love his connection with both teams and, and that's what, what I'll always think about with number 14. And it's, it is difficult, even though I wasn't around and even though maybe I'm just in an emotional state generally, well, generally, I'm in an emotional state, but heightened even more so right now. But, you know, it does choke you up when you think about, uh, uh, about that, that spring of 1972 and, and, and just the tragedy of, of for the Hodges, uh, most importantly, but also the tragedy for, for the Brooklyn family and the Mets family that he was so a part of and intertwined with by the time that he, he passed. It, it's it still hurts to this day, even though I wasn't around for it. You you know you can tell it hurts to this day, and it's it, it's even more hurtful that he's not in the Hall of Fame. That's where we are with Gil Hodges right now in 2018. Yeah, I don't have much to add on any of that. Um, you know, I remember as a uh, it was literally like my first year just starting to know what baseball was. And um, when he passed, and um, I remember my dad saying, "Well, you know, the Mets manager died," and I was like, oh, "You didn't really understand death, of course." And I was like, "What?" And um, and Yogi Berra, you know, took over and all of that. But but when you when you think about the turnaround of this organization from the lovable losers and all that stuff, you could say it was you know fifty percent Gil Hodges, twenty percent whatever. But the man had a big say in it. Um, I think when you look at um, some of the lore, you know, it's interesting to hear different sides of it. You know, did he go out to take Cleon Jones out because Cleon Jones didn't hustle after ball in a doubleheader against the Astros? Uh, Hodges, I think, to this well, to the day he passed, said no, that wasn't what he did. He said he was walking out there because he thought Cleon Jones had injured himself. He wasn't walking out there to angrily take him out of the game. But it all speaks to the fact that 
Hodges had that aura. You know, when he was walking out to left field, you knew something was up, right? And imagine a manager doing that now. Imagine it's so rare to see a player sat for lack of hustle. Look at Bryce Harper over the weekend. And they were talking about this this morning on Talking Baseball, how he's supposed to be a team leader. And he, he hit into a double play the other night, and he walked down the line. Like, was, wasn't a third of the way down the line when the double play was completed. Gil Hodges, whether or not he specifically in that moment was walking out to remove Cleon from the game or not, is irrelevant. He had that aura about him, that that shit wasn't going to happen on this team. And he didn't have to be going out there to do it. You knew he was upset. You knew by the look in his face and who he was that it was like, you know, that, that old thing that all your dad had to do was look at you, and you knew you were in trouble. He didn't have to say anything, and that was Gil Hodges. And so as an old-school guy, I mean, I wish there was more of that in the game. I wish there was more accountability. The players run the show now. We all know that. Um, managers simply execute the will of the front office, and um, everybody comes to the players. So if you take the player off the field, then you know everybody's gonna be mad at the manager, right? And so it doesn't happen. But Gill made it happen, and he was responsible for a turnaround in the process of doing it. Um, someone was sat the other day, actually. Oh, well, did you see the thing with the uh, the Astros reliever there, Deekman? Um, did you see that? I did not. I didn't see. I didn't see that. I did not see. All that. right. So he's a reliever, throws 99, you know. He's not having a good year, but he was a big part of their run last year. So, um, and he walked, and the A.J. Hinch walks out to the mound to take him out of the game. He was getting, he was getting shelled, he's, and he was in a late, you know, late pressure situation. And you could see Deekman's mouth. As A.J. Hinch takes the ball, he goes, he calls him a fucking idiot. He goes, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> right? Hinch went to the front office people after the game. Deekman was sent down. He's like, you know what? I don't want that guy here. That guy's gonna. If that guy is so self-absorbed that he doesn't realize why he's being taken out of the game, and he's gonna he's gonna lash out at me for his problem, I want him out of here. He's not good for my team. And they sent him down. Amazing. I, I love it. I you can YouTube that. it. Right there. There oh. you go. There you go. I applaud that because applaud you can't it. circumvent the chain of command. When a manager decides he wants something done, his general manager at front office has to support him. I applaud that. Absolutely. If you get a chance, YouTube Deekman, uh, Deekman and Hinch, and I'm sure you'll see it. Um, can, I have, can I have fun one second and ask you guys sure. a question? Because this is indeed having sure. fun. Remember how Gil Hodges sure. walked out from Cleon Jones in left field? How do you think that would go down if he would have done that to Joanna uh, Cespedes? <laughs> Cespedes would not talk oh to him God. for, like, the rest of eternity. Um, <laughs> the front office would, would call would call the Gill in and say, look, you can't embarrass our guy. We're paying him $27 million, man. You can't do that. Right. Right. I mean, it's the truth. I think you're right. You'd probably get fired, too. <laughs> Ain't it the truth. But Hinch isn't getting fired, oh, so somebody could do it. <laughs> um, oh my god Nobody's firing A.J. Hinch today for that And everybody applauds it oh, I, I applaud that, I applaud that I'll say it again, you know, when a manager wants something done When he's called, you know, foul on a player I, I, His general manager The front office has to support him And he has That's the only club they have when, when, when you have a locker room with I mean, just millionaires who are entitled and they feel they have the right to, you know, behave any which way they feel, 
and please, you have to instill, you have to give managers that kind of clout to show them, hey, man, you're screwing with the wrong dude, and I'm just going to show you exactly how wrong you are. You have to do that. Exactly. Um, All right, men, we've used basically all of our two hours. I think it's time for the last word. Um, So just recapping, (laughs) I say that with a smile on my face. The Mets are 39 and 55. <laughs> Thanks for last. Somebody left. Um, Mets are 39 and 55. We all need a break from this. It's been a rough first half, man. It's rough to be a Mets fan right now, and and we're on the we're on the cusp. I mean, either there's going to be more of the same in the back half, or if there are some big moves made, we might be re-energized by looking at some young, exciting players. Who knows? You know that that's where we are. So, all right, last word. We'll go to Mike first on this one, and Mr. LaColent, Mr. Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, what is your last word for the 14th episode of the Metsian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike? Insanity. We know the definition by now, repeating the same thing, looking for a different result. Do something with conviction. And I do mean Jeff. Do something different. Come on. You have a big, you have an opportunity, an opportunity here to, you know, flex and get this right and prove once and for all that you actually know what you're doing because you haven't thus far. Insanity. Stop repeating the past. It's gotten you nowhere. Move forward, man. For, you know, in the name of Casey Stengel and Joan Payson, please, move forward. Stop the insanity. That's it. Love it. Sam, your last word tonight. Conviction. Mike mentioned it earlier. That's kind of what he was going for in some fashion without that being exactly his last word. But Mike used the word earlier, and that's kind of a word that's come up for me a lot lately. Uh, conviction. And and that's what the, the Mets need to show in every single which way they do business. I like it. My last word is bold. I'd like the Mets to be bold and not not do the safe thing of, you know, trading off some expiring contract tracks. And it doesn't have to be Syndergaard and DeGrom, but do something. You know, package three or four guys together and bring back one or two elite prospects, something. Do something bold. Don't give me three individual trades for three individual Class A relievers with 95-mile-an-hour fastballs. I mean, do something bold. Rico said it. We've been tasked with thinking outside the box. We'll think outside the box and do something. And and I know this is more than just a lot of words, but my final thought would be I've never understood the idea that you get more in the off season. I don't believe that's true because at this point, some teams are saying to themselves, hey, you know, we think we're in this. We're desperate for one or two pieces. I think you get more now when teams see the prize out there than in the off season. That's my opinion. Anyway, so be bold, Mets. Give us something. Um, all right, so that's it. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mike, for the 14th episode of the Metsian Podcast. Appreciate chatting baseball with you guys. Let's take four days to clear right. our heads. Uh, always fun with you guys. And uh, let's take a couple of days to clear our heads. I know we, have, we pop, might have a show coming up later this week. Let's take a couple of days to clear our heads, do some other things, watch the All-Star game, 
Um, and then we'll we'll be back at it in just a couple of days. So as always, guys, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Have a good night. Bye now. Later, guys. <laughs>